0: Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour, Episode 91, The Open Game License Crisis. Now, normally on this podcast, we stay away from current events. I mean, we've got a YouTube channel, and I usually cut videos where I discuss current event stuff. In fact, I even did a couple that covered this very subject. However, after a couple of months of reading various articles online and checking out threads on Twitter and Facebook, it's become apparent to me that there's a lot of folks out there who not only don't understand what the open game license is, but they also don't seem to understand where the controversy is coming from. So in the interest of providing the type of education I like to bring to you, I made the executive decision to dedicate an entire episode of Roleplaying History to this subject. Now, I also need to note up front that I am aware that I did an entire episode of the show on the Open Game License, or OGL, and the System Reference Document, or SRD. However, that show more or less covered things in a generic manner, especially since we didn't have the most recent controversy on the table at the time. So, while I'm going to go back and cover materials we've already addressed on this show, I'm doing so to give a historical perspective on what's going on today. And in a further public service announcement for the show, you're going to get a lot more personal opinion from me during this show, since I've got a lot of thoughts about how things went down, where things went wrong, and even a prediction or two about where things are going from here. So with the disclaimers out of the way, let's crank up the tour bus and get to it. The Open Game License, or OGL, is defined as a public copyright license by Wizards of the Coast. It allows for game developers to use some Wizards-specific content for their own games. Usually, it boils down to the use of game mechanics, which they modify as they use. However, it can also be applied to some character types as well. The OGL also gives permission for the developers to copy and redistribute the materials, which means they can sell what they've created. What all that means is that when you hear folks talking about third-party content providers, This is what folks are talking about, designers and companies that do business creating their own products based at least in part on the designs from Wizards of the Coast. And we're specifically referring to Dungeons and Dragons as the game in question, by the way, so as we move along, just know that, in case you didn't already. Per the Wizards of the Coast SRD, the OGL states that, quote, in consideration for agreeing to use this license, the contributors grant you a perpetual, worldwide, royalty free, non exclusive license with the exact terms of this license to use the open game content. End quote. The OGL then goes on further to specifically define two forms of content. The first is open game content, or OGC. Quote, includes the methods, procedures, processes, and routines to the extent such content does not embody the product identity and is an enhancement over the prior art and any other additional content clearly identified as open game content by the contributor and means any work covered by this license, including translations and derivative works under copyright law, but specifically excludes product identity, end quote. So we need to define product identity. Quote, product and product line names, logs and identifying marks, including trade dress, artifacts, creatures, characters, stories, storylines, plots, thematic elements, dialogue, incidents, language, artwork, symbols, designs, depictions, likenesses, formats, poses, concepts, themes and graphic, photographic and other visual or audio representations, names and descriptions of characters spells enchantments personalities teams personas likenesses and special abilities places locations environments creatures equipment magical or supernatural abilities or effects logos symbols or graphic designs and any other trademark or registered trademark end quote okay there's already a ton of information there so let's break it down a bit For the record, I am not a lawyer, nor do I play one on television, so this is my interpretation of what these two bits say. A third-party content provider is permitted to create their own campaign setting so long as it doesn't use specifics from previously published WOTC materials. They can refer to character races, such as human, elf, halfling, etc., as well as the established classes, like paladin, fighter, yada, yada, yada. They can also utilize the spells that have already been created in the core rulebooks. What they can't do is use specific characters from the materials, such as Elminster or Drizzt from Forgotten Realms, and they cannot utilize the storylines for any of those characters and just substitute in their own character. Now, there's a bit more to it than that, but I'm pretty sure you can extrapolate out what most of it is pretty easily. One other note on this particular part of the OGL is a specific note within the SRD and OGL that notes that use of another company's product identity is considered breach of a licensing agreement. In other words, if you're creating the product under the WOTC OGL and pull stuff from, say, Paizo Publishing's materials like Pathfinder, you've breached the agreement and WOTC can then order you to cease and desist. Okay, so let's get into the history of the OGL and see how in the hell we got ourselves into all of this recent mess. The OGL, which later started being referred to as OGL 1.0, was originally released by Wizards of the Coast to allow for licensing and usage of the materials for the newly released third edition. As noted, the SRD came out at the same time, and if you're a bit confused as to why you need both documents, The SRD is the document that gets deeper into what is and isn't allowed, while the OGL would be considered to be closer to the contract, if you will. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but I had one explain that to me. The OGL, as we've mentioned, was the beginning of allowing third-party creators to legally produce and market materials for D&D, and the SRD at the time set the boundaries. As James Malewski noted in his Escapist article on August 20th, 2009, it included, quote, The basic rules and elements of D&D, such as classes, monsters, spells, and magic items, enabling the creation of legal support products for the game, end quote. Malzwiski also noted that Ryan Dancy, who was a big-time creator at Wizards of the Coast at the time, was the individual spearheading the initiative, and he based this OGL on the various open-source licenses in use in the software industry at the time. Dancy also had the idea to include a D20 system trademark license, which allowed third-party creators to use some of Watsy’s trademark logos and other items in order to make their materials that much more compatible and it was partially because of the D20 Modern book that this license came into being, though D&D was also covered. Dancy participated in an online interview in February of 2002 and laid out his reasoning for doing all of this. Quote, I think there's a very, very strong business case that can be made for the idea of embracing the ideas at the heart of the open source movement and finding a place for them in gaming. One of my fundamental arguments is that by pursuing the open gaming concept, Wizards can establish a clear policy on what it will and will not allow people to do with its copyrighted materials. Just that alone should spur a huge surge in independent content creation that will feed into the D&D network, end quote. Now, I need to take a step back and cover something important here. The release of 3rd Edition and the OGL wasn't the first time writers and game creators of various types had created materials for D&D, or for other games for that matter. Basically, since the advent of the home internet, players and GMs have been creating their own scenarios, classes, races, magic items, spells, and so on and so forth. And they have just been sharing them online in forums for folks interested in checking out and using that kind of home stuff. And in the interest of full disclosure, I was a member of one of those websites in the late 1990s and contributed many a magic weapon to the pile as well as using several for my own games. Now, the major difference between these creators and the ones that came later was that these early creators didn't have the ability to legally make money on their creations, since attempting to publish them and sell to a mass market would have violated TSR's copyrights and trademarks, and most certainly would have led to cease and desist orders at best and full-on lawsuits at worst. So at that time, it was kind of a need one, take one, have one, leave one sort of system. The OGL and SRD changed that part of the game seemingly forever and opened up an entire section of the industry devoted to creating third-party materials for the most popular tabletop role-playing game in the world. In 2014, a couple of academics by the name of Benoit Demille and Xavier Lecoq published their thoughts on the OGL, but from a business standpoint. In the Economic Journal, Revue d'Economie Industrielle, French, sorry, screwed it up I'm sure, They flat-out stated that a business goal of Watsy was to, as they saw it, have competitors institutionalize a standardized rule system. The thought process was, quote, If Watsy could get more people in the industry to use the game system, players would learn only one system and be able to migrate from product to product and game to game without learning and transaction costs. While it would reduce the number of original gaming systems in the market, the idea was to increase the audience for everybody, especially the leader. The ultimate goal was to establish D20 as a recognizable trademark, just like DVD or VHS. End quote. But what if WotC ever wanted to change the OGL? Wizards of the Coast addressed this possibility on their own website in January of 2004. They said, quote, the OGL already defines what will happen to content that has been previously distributed using an earlier version in Section 9. As a result, even if Wizards made a change you disagreed with, you could continue to use an earlier, acceptable version at your option. In other words, there's no reason for Wizards to ever make a change that the community of people using the Open Game License would object to because the community would just ignore the change anyway." End quote. Now, I want you to file that comment away, because it's going to come into play a little bit later on. As I mentioned back in our original OGL episode, Wizards of the Coast did make a change to the license system with the release of D&D 4th Edition in June of 2008. The new license was called the Game System License, or GSL, and it was way more restrictive than the OGL had been. The GSL only applied to 4th Edition, however, so much as Wizards of the Coast had assumed previously, A number of third-party producers continue to work on 3.5 edition materials and basically ignored 4th edition. Greg Tito wrote in The Escapist in 2011 that the GSL, quote, "...released in conjunction with 4th edition took away many of the freedoms that the industry had come to expect with the D&D rules, such as reprinting text for clarity in new products," end quote. Andy Collins, who was the design and development manager for 4th Edition, was quoted in that same article, quote, I remember arguing pretty hard to retain something like what Wizards had done for 3rd Edition, an open license that included the core rules and a few basic guidelines on how to use it. I argued that without some kind of OGL, Wizards risked leaving behind the body of customers and potential customers who saw the open license as an assumed part of the D&D experience. In hindsight, I wonder if it might simply have been better to let the OGL die rather than guilting the company into crafting a Frankenstein's monster of an open license that ended up pleasing basically nobody, end quote. I'd say that's another quote to stuff in our back pockets because we're getting way close to the controversy. On January 12th, 2016, Wizards of the Coast returned to the open gaming format when they released the 5th edition SRD under the OGL 1.0 we discussed earlier. That brought the newest edition of the game back to where 3rd edition had been. In May of 2016, the SRD was updated to version 5.1, but the OGL stayed the same. One thing that did change was that there was another license option presented to creators, and that was the Dungeon Masters Guild Storefront, which is owned and controlled by Wizards of the Coast. This license is probably one of the most open ones out there, as it allows individuals and third-party providers to create content that freely uses Wizards of the Coast intellectual property, like the Forgotten Realms or Ravenloft, just to name two, they're also allowed to set their own prices for the materials. But the caveat here is that Watsi and One Bookshelf, who handles the PDFs for the site, get a 50% cut of the proceeds. Again though, fifth edition saw an increase in the amount of third-party materials being produced all over social media sites. Advertisements abounded for various D&D compatible books. Funding sites such as Kickstarter were full of campaigns to raise money for these third-party providers to create and release their own works. And the popularity of live-stream games like Critical Role brought even more attention to D&D and the various works, especially when the Critical Role team published their setting book, which was based on the intellectual properties of Wizards of the Coast. For most of us who follow the game industry as either a profession or a fairly serious hobby, there seemed to be no end to this rainbow of materials being produced for the game we've loved since we were kids. After all, wizards seemed to understand that keeping the gaming community involved in the production of materials for the game kept them engaged in the game itself, and made it much more likely they'd be willing to accept another version of the game. However, as 2022 turned to 2023, we began to realize this might not be the case. Let's back up another half step, though, and explain what started all of this. In August of 2022, Wizards announced they were launching their playtest for various materials intended to be a part of that next version, which they dubbed 1D&D. Multiple sources reported that folks involved directly with the project were claiming that 1D&D wasn't going to be a new version per se, but a living document. They argued that the new way of creating would allow for a gradual evolution of the game without having to stick a new version number on it every time they wanted to put new or revised rules out there. Of course, folks like myself were a bit skeptical about that since a playtest of new rules almost always is the precursor to a new edition of the game coming out. In November of 2022, the first leaks began to show about the possibility of the change or elimination of the OGL 1.0. While none of the leaks could be definitively confirmed, the rumors began to run rampant. So rampant, in fact, that Wizards released a statement later in the month, we will continue to support the thousands of creators making third-party D&D content with the release of one D&D in 2024. "...while it is certain our open game license will continue to evolve, just as it has since its inception, we're too early in the development of one d and to give more specifics on the OGL or system reference document at this time." End quote. The rumors wouldn't go away, though. If anything, they increased in intensity, especially as writers and commentators began to focus on the part of the Wizards' announcement about the OGL evolving. Third-party creators began to openly express their own concerns about this, especially since they began to worry about their own companies and products. And it turns out, they had reasons to be worried. During the first week of the new year, a leaked version of the new OGL hit the internet. While many of us were initially skeptical about it being real, we all realized that if even half of it was accurate, things were about to change. First, Wizards of the Coast announced it would go into effect in 2023. Next, they stated it would only apply to, quote, printed media or static electronic files such as EPUBs and PDFs, end quote, and, quote, only covers material created for use in or as tabletop role-playing games, end quote. They made it a point to note that it wouldn't apply to video games or virtual tabletops. It was also announced at that time that content creators would be required to put what they called an official OGL badge on their products. Further, they announced that any revenues related to OGL content would have to be reported to Wizards if the revenue exceeded $50,000 annually. Furthermore, if the revenue exceeded $750,000, creators would have to pay a royalty beginning in 2024. Linda Kodega of io9 gets the credit for blowing the whole story open in her report in early January of 2023. She'd gotten her hands on that leaked copy of the OGL 1.1 and noted that it eliminated OGL 1.0, meaning it could no longer be used. She broke it down like this, quote, While the OGL 1.0 granted a perpetual worldwide non-exclusive license, The OGL 1.1 included language that worked around authorized versions of that license, adding, according to attorneys consulted for this article, the new language may indicate that Wizards of the Coast is rendering any future use of the original OGL void, and asserting that if anyone wants to continue to use open game content of any kind, they will need to abide by the terms of the updated OGL, which is a far more restrictive agreement than the original OGL. Other reporters picked up on Codega's work, and the reports began to come out that Wizards of the Coast stated that their intentions with the original OGL was not, quote, to fund major competitors, and it wasn't intended to allow people to make D&D apps, videos, or anything other than printed or printable materials for use while gaming, end quote. Ryan Dancy, who was the former vice president at Wizards and the man who helped create OGL 1.0, stated in an EN World article from Russ Morrissey on January 5th, 2023, that, quote, "'My public opinion is that Hasbro does not have the power "'to deauthorize a version of the OGL. "'If that had been a power that we wanted to reserve "'for Hasbro, we would have enumerated it in the license. "'I am on record numerous places in emails and blogs "'and interviews saying that the license "'could never be revoked,' end quote." As the heat was being turned up on both Hasbro, and Wizards of the Coast, pundits noted that Wizards had basically gone radio silent for several days. And when they finally did speak, it was a short announcement on their Facebook and Twitter accounts that said, basically, that they'd heard about the concerns about the proposed changes and would be issuing their official OGL for the public to see shortly. As you might expect, that did nothing to quell the continued controversy, and we'll expand more on all of that in a few minutes. It took several more days before Wizards released an official statement, and on January 19th, 2023, they released a new OGL, this one called OGL 1.2. What it proposed was that some D&D mechanics would be placed under a Creative Commons license, which for the uninitiated means that the copyrighted materials included in it would be free to use, expand on, and published by third-party creators. Other materials would be covered by the OGL 1.2. To give an idea of what this split was proposed to be, specific classes, spells, and monsters would be covered by the OGL 1.2, while things like alignment, equipment, feats, ability scores, and their usage, combat rules, spellcasting rules, monster stat blocks, and conditions would be covered by the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International. Yes, that's the full name. Yes, that's a mouthful. It was also noted that the OGL 1.2 removed the financial reporting, royalty payments, license back, which we'll get to momentarily, registration and distinction between commercial and non-commercial, which we'll also cover momentarily. It also deauthorized OGL 1.0 and noted that OGL 1.2 would be irrevocable Though several sources noted there was still a severability clause should a part of the license be held to be unenforceable or invalid. There was also a separate virtual tabletop policy as a part of the new documentation. Now, as a part of the proposed OGL 1.2, Wizards of the Coast opened up a feedback request on its website and social media sources. As a result of that, on January 27th, 2023, Wizards announced that the SRD 5.1 would be released under an irrevocable Creative Commons license effective immediately, and OGL 1.0 would not be deauthorized. So after all of that, there's a lot of folks out there that have been wondering since the beginning exactly what all the controversy is and what it means to the average gamer. This is where I'm going to get away from the direct research and reporting I've got And get a little more informal with my reporting. So let's back up all the way to the origins of the OGL. Wizards of the Coast was arguing during the debate over the new OGL that when they created the initial document, there weren't any third-party publishers publishing materials based on their product, nor was the internet as big of a thing as it has turned out to be. In their own words, the new OGL was designed to tighten things up a bit and account for these changes in the market. Now, I did two YouTube videos about the controversy at the time, and I noted then that Wizards had had multiple opportunities over the past 22 years or so to gradually tighten up some of the issues that they were claiming needed to be addressed at this point. I mean, let's look at the facts. The original OGL was released for version 3.0 of D&D. Since then, Three additional versions of the game have been released, and while they did try a more restrictive license for 4th edition, they didn't do anything for 3.5 or 5. In fact, as we noted earlier, the more restrictive license for 4th edition caused a number of publishers, including Paizo, to not take the leap to that version and instead retreat to the OGL for 3rd edition. So what was it really all about? In my opinion, and in the opinions of a lot of reporters and gamers, it was about money. I noted in my first video on the issue that Wizards is one of the largest revenue producers for Hasbro, bringing over a billion dollars a year in revenue. I also noted that, according to Forbes magazine, Wizards had seen about a 12% drop in revenues for the third quarter of 2022. For those keeping score at home, that financial release was just before the announcement of the new OGL came out. That same Forbes article noted that sales of D&D specifically were down about 5% in the quarter, and since D&D is Wizards' top financial producer, with Magic the Gathering being a close second, Hasbro most likely panicked. That was proven out by reports that Hasbro had instructed Wizards to increase the production of Magic cards in the fourth quarter, assuming that more cards would equal increased revenue. However, and this is strictly my opinion, though I've seen it hinted at by a few others, I'm betting that somebody in the accounting department at Hasbro looked at the revenues being generated by third-party product providers and wondered why Hasbro wasn't getting their cut of that money. They were probably thinking that if those companies were making money off of their intellectual property, Hasbro should get a cut of it, right? Now this is where I caught some crap from folks who watched my videos, because I did argue that I could see the argument about intellectual property. I mean, if I created something that was an exceptionally popular product and you were making damn good money producing things for it, shouldn't I be able to get a cut of the money? It's not necessarily an invalid argument, but I also noted that the way Hasbro was going about it was not only heavy-handed, but also exceptionally short-sighted, and here's why. In my opinion, Hasbro sees Wizards of the Coast and their products in the same way they see the toys and board games they produce. We created them, we sell them, and if you make anything that's anywhere near what we make, we're going to make sure we get a cut of the money. In the case of third-party materials for D&D, this is a bit different. It can be argued that the continued popularity of 5th edition d and and if we really want to make the argument here, we can say that third-party materials made 3rd edition as popular as it was, is due to those third-party creators giving gamers more options to utilize him playing D&D. Take them out of the equation, and you alienate a portion of your target audience that not only uses those materials but prefers them over the Wizards of the Coast releases in many cases. And apparently, my theories about Hasbro have a bit more root in fact than I originally had thought. I'd written my previous comments on Monday, February 6th. On Tuesday, February 7th, Kyle Brink, the executive producer for D&D, conducted an interview on the Three Black Halflings podcast. During the interview, he reported that during the meetings concerning OGL 1.1, he was the only member of the Wizards production team involved in the meetings. And he noted further that all of the personnel directly involved with Wizards in some shape or form had noted what the backlash would be should the OGL be changed, only to be overruled by the management portion of the team from Hasbro. Brink did admit that the reason for so few members of his team being present was his desire to keep them out of the maelstrom he believed was coming, and he admitted that that decision was an error. He also took credit for the release from Wizards on January 19th that got into greater details about the hold being placed on the OGL 1.1. He stated that, moving forward, he believes that Wizards has the support of Cynthia Williams, who is the president of Wizards of the Coast and Digital Gaming at Hasbro. He noted that she has given the management team at Wizards more authority and control moving forward, and Brink believes that this authority will prevent further issues like the one we've been discussing during this show. My thought on that is, we shall see. Getting just a little off the subject for a minute, Brink also made a comment during that Three Black Halflings interview that turned into some clickbait bullshit. The headline that I was seeing for clickbait was, Wizards of the Coast executive producer says white people need to get out of D and D. Sounds pretty incendiary, doesn't it? Well, I did say it was clickbait. If you go back and read the entire transcript of the conversation, or better yet, grab the episode of the podcast and hear the actual context of the comments. What Brink said was that the creative team for D&D needed to better represent the broad spectrum of players who are out there. And yes, he did note that cis white guys are the majority in the creative room. And he noted that if Wizards as a company is to be more inclusive in their products moving forward, they need as much diversity as they can get. So when you hear the entire comment, or at least as much of it, it was needed to be said to clarify, doesn't quite sound so bad now, does it? Anyway, let's get back to my thoughts on the original situation, and we can now definitely point the finger at Hasbro. Another misstep on the part of Hasbro was when it announced that D&D Beyond, which is the wildly popular online tool for 5th edition, would be switching to a $30 a month subscription fee. That announcement, combined with the announcement about OGL 1.1, caused so many cancellations of D&D Beyond subscription that the servers for D&D Beyond crashed multiple times. Again, fans of D&D spoke with their wallets, and it can be argued that their speech probably led to the change in decision by the company. However, it can also be argued that it might have been too little too late. As I reported in my second YouTube video, a large number of publishers announced their own OGLs and SRDs in the wake of the OGL 1.1 debacle. Among them, Paizo, who banded together with a number of other publishers in their efforts, and MCDM, who'd already been in the process of developing their own system anyway, but decided to move up the process to get theirs out by the end of 2023. Another possible victim of the controversy is the upcoming Dungeons & Dragons movie. There's a small but growing group of players online who've already stated they have no desire to see the movie because it'll wind up putting money in Hasbro's pockets. Now, on this one, I have to respectfully disagree because if this movie flops, we will have no chance to ever get another movie based on a role-playing game in all likelihood. Let's face it, if Iron Man had bombed, we'd have never probably gotten another Marvel movie other than Spider-Man, just saying. As I also noted in the first video I did and has been echoed by pretty much everybody else, the folks who stood to lose the most with the OGL 1.1 are the third-party companies, many of whom already work on shoestring budgets to get their materials out, and they rely on freelancers to produce content. Had the OGL 1.1 gone into effect, it's the freelancers who would have probably gotten cut first, followed by staff writers for other companies. It would have seen a number of companies probably go out of business, and that would have been bad for the industry as a whole. When I made those comments, I also noted that we were looking at a seismic shift in the landscape of the role-playing world, and there were a number of folks who accused me of crying wolf. I'm okay with that, because while I was stating my support for third-party creators, I was also aware that while they might be down for a bit, with some of the changes from other companies, they'd be able to eventually change gears and start creating product for the new companies and games. What we're seeing, ultimately, is still a seismic change. However, I would argue it's a change for the better. The number of companies adding OGLs to their games and systems means that third-party content creators will have a larger market to work for, so they won't be tied to one system and therefore subject to their whims. I'd also argue that at some point, D&D might actually see its first serious competitor in a long time, and we could see that as soon as the next couple of years. That, of course, is not certain by any means, but it is a distinct possibility. I wanted to hit on two more thoughts before I wrap it up this week. When all of the controversy went down, there was a groundswell of support across the hobby for those supporting the third-party producers, and it was almost like if you didn't express your support for them, you were some sort of traitor. And while I get it, there's one instance where I think folks might have gone a bit too far. Critical Role released a statement in which they stated their support for third-party creators. Now, I'll be the first to admit that Critical Role has been, from time to time, a controversy magnet, but this time I think they got heat they didn't deserve. A decent-sized chunk of the gaming universe got onto them for not saying anything about Wizards of the Coast or Hasbro or the OGL, and folks accused them of basically kissing Hasbro's ass. I'm one of those who've gone on record as saying I believe there's a reason for the wording of their statement. Since almost the beginning of the show, Critical Role has utilized D&D Beyond, who've sponsored the show. I'd also note that Matt Mercer has written a book for Wizards of the Coast, and the Taldori book they published through their own company is technically a third-party product. And while I don't know for sure, I'd also bet there's some sort of license or agreement between Critical Role and Wizards of the Coast for the use of their materials in the show itself. So, I'd bet they didn't take shots at Wizards of the Coast because of those agreements. Because it would be the equivalent of cutting off your nose despite your face. Or, more to the point, a lawsuit waiting for a place to happen. In fact, I would lay even money that once the third season of Critical Role is complete, you'll see them switch to a different system. Now, since they were originally using Pathfinder in the home game, that would be my bet, but hey, any system would probably be fair game. My final point is this. There's a large number of folks who are celebrating the fact that we basically won the fight with Hasbro over the OGL, since we're basically not only getting to keep what we got, but we're getting new stuff besides. Look, that's true. You should celebrate. However, I'm going to lay even money again that we're not done with the OGL debate. After all, one D&D is coming next year, and if you think Hasbro has forgotten about this whole deal, you'd be sadly mistaken. Even with the promise of more authority for the management team at Wizards, I find it hard to believe that Hasbro will choose to let the entire situation go away. Of course, that's my opinion, and we all know what they say about opinions. And with that, we've come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we deep dive target games and some of the games and systems they're best known for. Until then, please check out our other fine podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. This week, we continue along the first major storyline in our campaign as our group continues their quest to find information on the ever-elusive Jackson Denman. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs, Role playing history is a production of bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube and Tumblr, it's Bad GM Productions. You can email us badgmproductions at gmail.com, and online the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week we'll take a shot at the Target. Sorry, we're gonna take a look at Target games. Make sure I get that right. But that's next week, folks. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis in your role-playing history.